practice them all week. I'd like to touch on two or three things tonight. And again, my intention in offering this talk is to have it be a practical talk that applies in particular for people who are on retreat, who are in the kind of environment where there is intensive meditation practice going on and there are teachers who are part of this process and who work with the sangha of practitioners and work with retreatants as individuals too. It's an interesting thing um, to me when I first started having teacher interviews. For a while I couldn't quite figure out what was going on there. Uh, there's been some conversation in the, the teaching community about what we should actually be calling this time that we spend with you. You know, somebody was saying, well, let's call it uh, an interview. And somebody said, no, let's call it uh, dialogue. And somebody said, well, no, let's call it uh, practice meetings. And... Uh, you know, somebody from California was talking about, you know, maybe calling it, uh, I don't know, therapy or something. <laughs> but it's really not <laughs> therapy. But it's an interesting thing because that's one of the overlays we tend to bring to this kind of intimate one-to-one conversation that takes place between the teacher and the, the person on retreat. And just uh, this word interview can sometimes generate a whole set of meetings, uh, set of associations that can be quite stressful. You know, like an interview for a job or a audition for a part as an actor or a musician or, you know, exams at school or being screened by border security or one of those kinds of episodes. Will you just step over here, sir, just for a moment, you know? I'd like to talk with you and ask you a few questions. Is that okay? Well, you know, what are you going to say, right? And it's interesting, too, because going to an interview or practice meeting can feel a little bit like going to see a therapist or uh, going to confession to a priest or talking to a confidant or Maybe you may carry a little residue or set of associations of it being a little bit like going before the judge and they're going to you know, decide whether you, uh, you know, get a ticket or get held for further custody here at the forest refuge until you get it together. But that's really not exactly what's going on there. So... If I was going to put it in a very compressed way, I would describe this process of meeting with a teacher as a two-person joint Dharma 
inquiry. And the main purpose of this meeting from the perspective of practice is what's called uh, Dhamma Vikaya, which is investigation. And this particular investigation is done by the teacher and the retreatant together. So it's a kind of joint enterprise and that has a, uh, a lot of interesting ramifications to look at it that way. So there's a pointing to the fact that there's a mutual learning going on there in this process of having the meeting, the joint investigation. But before I get into some of the aspects of the actual meeting of the two people, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about investigation itself and what it is. You know, uh, investigation, again, this is one of those words that we use in a lot of different ways. But if we're going to look at it as it's meant in this Dharma context, we'd say it's the process through which wisdom arises. So having established mindful connection with experience the mind over time through sustaining this mindful connection with immediate experience starts to notice certain things. And it becomes curious about what's actually happening from moment to moment. And this curiosity and interest which arises also encourages further settling of the mind, further interest in the mind, a turning in a more settled way towards what's actually happening moment by moment in real time and present tense during the course of a sitting period or a walking period or during the period of your yogi job or during the period where you're moving between activities. The mind starts to notice what's going on in a more immediate and sustained kind of mindful way. And it starts to find it interesting. Now, in beginning to see the workings of the mind, and I say the mind, but let me clarify, I don't mean just thoughts and emotions and those kinds of things. I mean the mind and its broadest sense, meaning everything that we know, everything that we experience arises within the mind, right? It arises within consciousness or it arises within awareness. So even things, for instance, that are physical sensations arise in the mind, are known in the mind, are known with consciousness. As the awareness becomes steadier and steadier and this knowing is more consistent, the mind, the awareness, starts to notice certain things. It begins to see how it creates suffering and how it can release that suffering. Hmm. How does the mind create suffering and how does it release suffering? 
So this quality of investigation is sometimes uh, translated as investigation of states, states of body and mind, or sometimes it's called uh, discerning the Dharma, discerning the, the Dhamma. And it's a very, very important aspect of Buddhist teaching, investigation. And it's actually a hallmark of this particular kind of spiritual practice. This willingness to be present, to perceive what is there to be known, and to actually take this arising of present tense experience as the very material or the real, very method by which the whole system trues itself, lets go of delusion, comes to wisdom. So investigation, dhammavikaya, is the second of the seven factors of awakening. The Buddha says when the mind is moving in the direction of awakening, culminating in a classical awakening or enlightenment kind of experience, there are seven mental factors in particular that open and more or less uh, uh, step-by-step order. And the second of these is investigation. So the first thing, of course, is mindfulness. That's the first step. Mindfulness is established. And then when mindfulness is established, it investigates. It uses that awareness, that present tense immediate receptive awareness, to investigate some of the specifics about what is immediately present. So this is the wisdom factor actually opening up in the mind and starting to, to move towards understanding. And it's the wisdom that results from investigation that will ultimately lead to our liberation as it grows and it starts to see into all the different kind of ways our experience manifests itself. So some of the things that it starts to notice or discern is the difference between skillful and unskillful states. You know, which states are offshoots of greed, hatred, and delusion, better known as suffering states, and which states are offshoots of their opposite, generosity and renunciation, um, loving kindness, and wisdom. And in learning how to recognize these, both the skillful and the unskillful, as real-time, real-tense experiences, the mind develops skill in being present to both of those binaries. And the effect is very interesting because the effect over time is to cultivate or strengthen the wholesome qualities of mind and to begin to see through, suppress, let go of the unwholesome, unskillful states of mind because they're recognized as states of suffering. So some of the things that we learn through the process of just attending moment to moment to whatever is happening is we start to see our own personal pattern of conditioning. And we we all have them. Right? We all have our own particular ways that we tend to, to suffer, you know, whether it's from aversion or it's from grasping or 
whether it's from confusion or, or delusion, and then there are particular thoughts that tend to go with that and particular body states that are part of that that seem to come up often or frequent and they, they're kind of a recurrent experience that can arise again and again in practice. And they often have a personal kind of narrative uh, bound up in it. But we start to be able to recognize these in a more objective way with a lot less selfing present in relationship to them. Right? The story making that really doubles down on any difficulty or suffering when it when the mind takes on responsibility for the presence of this particular state and then makes it into, you know, something of a tragedy or you know, turns it into like some hopeless, eternalized experience that means something about us and it's proof that, you know, X, Y, and Z and right, the downward spiral uh, begins. But wise relationship, wise investigation of these arisings, when the mind can start to, to hold an investigative stance in relationship to these personal patterns of conditioning, can really loosen them and free uh, ourselves from the grasp of uh, the suffering that comes from identification with them. But in the process, you'll see it. So by watching closely too, by investigating whatever is, is there before us, we start to get some insight into some understanding of the conditioned and conditional nature of all things, how they arise due to causes and conditions and pass away and change for the same kind of reasons. So we start to see that what we experience is not solid, it's not permanent, it's not owned by a me that's behind it and is the puppet master of the whole thing or is responsible for it moment to moment. So this is the beginning of the process of seeing what are called the three characteristics, which are uh, impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature of things, which is inherent in their instability, and the ungovernability or the the lack of solidity and the lack of a solid self behind anything that we can experience. So the mind starts to understand in a certain kind of way. These, everything that we can experience is conditioned and it's kind of the same as everything else because anything that we can experience is conditioned and thus it's impermanent it's incapable of providing lasting satisfaction and it isn't owned by anybody. It has its own nature. What will happen is dependent on causes and conditions and not governed by our will in the immediate sense. So when these three start to become visible, and they do through sustained practice and uh, learning some skill in the kind of investigation I'm talking about, 
then we begin to untangle our confusion about how we actually exist and begin to understand and be able to relate to, say, for instance, thought as a phenomenon, thought as a thing, thought as an event, which is a whole different thing from relating to thought as me. I can remember a few years ago I had the really interesting experience of being invited to be one of the teachers at this retreat given by uh, a group called IBME, which teaches mindfulness and some of these other practices to young people. And by young people, I mean like uh, late middle school and and high school age kids in the United States. So you're probably talking about um, 13-year-olds up to maybe 17-year-olds. So this was over the, the New Year's. And so I'm there and just kind of enjoying this. It's such a different energy than, you know, you would find around the forest refuge. You know, there's all these seething, you know, hormones and the energy and the, the goofiness and the intensity and the, you know, the, the tenderness and the curiosity of all of these, these young people. And they asked me to do a, a little mini Dharma talk and then lead a meditation. And I, I picked up the theme of thinking and thoughts. And I can remember starting with a question to them. And I said, are you your thoughts? And they looked at me. And I said, I bet you've never asked that question before, have you? Are you your thoughts? And they were kind of like, well, come on, lady. What do you think? I mean, well, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, you know, if you're your thoughts, that means that they're like they're under your control or something, or, you know, you decide what you're going to think, and, you know, you going to make decisions around that kind of thing. So that means that you can have the ones that you want and not have the ones you don't want, right? I said, you never notice how thoughts are so wildly inconsistent? I said, you know, like a really interesting one is, you know, like, say you're trying to lose some weight. You know, and so you've been laying off the the sweets, and then you have a really rough day, and you come home from school, and you know there's the cake that your mom made, and it's in the kitchen, and you say to yourself, "I've had a really ha- hard day at school. I think I deserve some cake." <laughs> Right, And so you go into the kitchen, you cut yourself a big old piece of cake, and you eat your big piece of cake. And then 15 or 20 minutes later, you're going, Damn! Why did I do that? I'm always going to be fat. What a terrible thing that I did. I have no discipline. I have no willpower. What's wrong with me? I'm a horrible person. 
I said, you ever notice it like that? You know how they can like flip-flop around on you just like that? It's almost like they don't have like a single perspective, right? Ever notice that for yourself, the inconsistencies of your thoughts? Sometimes I'll leave and go, oh yes, I've, now I understand this or I have this perspective and I'm, I'm never going to lose it. I'll always know this or have this experience. But it, maybe it'll get better, but you know, it won't go away. And then, of course, causes and conditions change. And then you, you know, have the arising of something that you thought you were completely rid of or wanted to be rid of or something that you thought you had finally attained or finally achieved and permanently installed as part of your ego structure suddenly dissolves again. <laughs> And there you are, you know, the same feeling the same feeling of self-pity and, <laughs> and despair. You know, this thought thing, this is very tricky and interesting field of practice, isn't it? So in practice, by including some of these uh, events at the mind door, like thoughts, you start to realize, well, okay, these are conditioned too. Under certain sets of circumstances, this, this kind of thought will arise, this kind of emotion will arise in association with it. And then when I'm in a different kind of environment or uh, you know, receiving different sensory experience, then that thought won't be there, but maybe there'll be another thought there and a whole other different emotional uh, experience with different body sensations. Start to realize, oh, okay, it, stuff comes and goes. Stuff comes and goes. It's not, there's no fixity to any, any of it. And of course the mind again and again gets in there and tries to control and manipulate and get it to be the way we want it to. And then it all falls apart again. <laughs> then we're all frustrated. And, right? But over time with sustained seeing, the mind starts to understand its span of control and it starts to do a lot more letting go and develops this ability to recognize well thought is a phenomenon too an impermanent conditioned phenomenon and this is part of the process of us coming into direct contact with reality through this kind of sustained direct immediate knowing of what's present and this is the very process of ending delusion, ending the root cause of the craving that the Buddha points to as the source of our suffering. So then to get back to the opening piece where I was talking about the teacher and the uh, conversation between the teacher and the student and the role of the, the teacher, there's an initial point to be made, which is, you know, the Buddha said that delusion is really the root of it all. It manifests as craving, which is a state of suffering. But the tricky thing about our suffering being rooted in delusion is that delusion is very hard to see directly, right? It's a little bit like trying to see the back of your head or something. Where's the delusion at? Where's the delusion at? Oh, it's looking through your sense doors. 
<laughs> but you can't really see it. So it can be really useful in that the process to have some support from a teacher. Now, there are other ways that we tend to try to get a grip on or a hold on things. So there are, there, there are books, there are talks, there are that, that kind of resource. And some of these describe how Dharma practice can unfold or how enlightenment can happen while on retreat. And it's interesting because sometimes uh, yogis come on retreat and they've read some of this kind of material and they might be familiar with something like the, the path of purification that describes the process of the insight knowledges arising and and all the rest of this. So this information is interesting and can be helpful sometimes. But when you're on retreat and you're working with a teacher trying to guide your own practice through ideas that you have from these kinds of sources is really not a good idea. So you may say, well, why not? Because it's the map, right? It's the map. Don't hold the map back from me. But you have to understand that the maps are descriptions of how the mind can open and come into understanding. But they're not necessarily accurate in all detail and they're not necessarily complete. And they don't describe the process for everyone. So it's an interesting thing from the teacher's perspective that often the student's sense of where they are in their, pr- their practice is, is very in- inaccurate. It's not even close to how uh, the teacher would tend to assess what's going on. So, and you know, why might that be? Well, because if you go on retreat sooner or later and certainly if you go on a significantly longer retreat than you've ever been on before, you're going to hit terrain that you haven't hit before. You're going to hit unfamiliar places. So, you know, thinking you know where you are when you're actually in uncharted territory is very unreliable. So a way to put it is, you know, a map is a map, but it's not like a GPS system, right? And so there isn't like a little pin on the screen that goes beep, 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 turn off into don't state, right? It's not like that. So certainly you're the one to describe what you're experiencing, to describe it. But what to make of what you're experiencing, that really is most usefully supported by the teacher. So it's really easy to mistake the map for the living experience of things. And it's interesting when that happens because if, if you're really pulling that out of the back pocket very often, then what tends to happen is then an effort is being made to try to make the present moment experience conform to some map or some idea about what the map says about what you should be experiencing. Can you see the problem with that? It's like the hall of mirrors phenomenon. So instead of it being like a very simple, grounded 
what am I experiencing right now? And just letting that be the way that it is and sustaining that present tense awareness and that immediate knowing, the mind has kind of got this split focus going and part of it is scheming about you know what it should do now to make something happen in the future or to attempt to recapture some experience that it had you know, yesterday that it thought was a good sign that it was going in the right direction. And right? So there's an immediate thing happening and the mind is almost like seeing, you know, right through it. It's not seeing uh, the foreground experience, the predominant experience, which is really, generally speaking, the place of practice, the foreground immediate experience. You know, so... Maps can describe what does happen, but the maps don't make it happen. <laughs> so if you like complexity, if you like the hall of mirrors, if you like, you know, trying to get the, uh, you know, the angle shot at the pool table, you have to be really good at pool. But if you've never done it before, you know, just like try to line up awareness with right immediate experience what's right there, right in the foreground. I uh, have a friend who told me about how he used to, to practice. And he said, you know, he knew the information about the seven factors of enlightenment and how they open in succession. And he knew what they were. And he said he used to go on retreat and he would sit down and he would try to make them arise. So he would start with mindfulness and he'd try to get investigation to arise and he tried to get, you know, you know, I'm going to bring up energy and now I'm going to bring up, you know, rapture and now I'm going to bring up calm and now I'm going to bring up concentration. And he was like exhausted, just exhausted trying to manufacture exper- experiences in a certain sequence. And he said, you know, it, it took him quite a while in his practice horizon until he realized that, you know, the description is not a, um, uh, the description is not a prescription, right? It's not like telling you to do it. Like take an eye of the newt, you know, and mix it up in the, and then you, you know, pour it into the beaker and you heat it under the Bunsen burner under the full moon and then you cook it up and no these descriptions are descriptions of what does happen okay not what you need to make happen if you attend in a sustained wise way it does happen but you're not making it happen through will Although it requires your complete commitment to presence. So, yeah. So this isn't like a formula or um, a cake recipe that you follow along. It's more like a rose or a lotus opening organically in response to the totality of the, the conditions that are present there. Right? And the rose knows how to do it. The lotus knows how to do it. It's not that you have to tell it, okay, get that right pedal going. 
Come on, come on, come on. Lift it up, lift it up, lift it up. Oh no, muddy water, oh no. I thought this was purification. Oh, I don't want this. Got to have some trust. So, so, again this point. So you're the one that knows your direct immediate experience, but you're not the best one to interpret it in intensive retreat. So it, it would be a little bit like trying to be your own spotter in gymnastics, right? You can either do the moves or you can be the spotter, but you can't do both at the same time very successfully. Okay, so let's talk about the role of the teacher in uh, Theravadan Buddhism, which is the, the general uh, school that... Uh, is affiliated with uh, IMS and the teachings offered at IMS, the source of most of them. So this, of course, is not like in Tibetan Buddhism. It's not like a guru uh, kind of thing. It's not like you may have seen in you know Hinduism either, where there's you know prostrations to the teacher and the idea that the teacher is some sort of semi uh, deity or maybe actually a full deity, but you know, just kind of like hanging out down here for a while. So it's not that kind of idea. So the way it's held within our tradition is Kalyanamita, which means spiritual friend. So this is somebody who has walked the path of practice and has learned some things and has some understanding and can be a guide and a support to you as you walk the path and do your practices and learn some things. So the role of the, the, the teacher then is as an experienced practitioner who can help offer you instructions and guidance and support in your learning and practice of insight meditation and metta. So Meditation instructions, Dharma talks, individual meetings or practice meetings are part of how this opens. So let's talk about the practice meetings themselves, the one-on-one opportunity that, that you have here. So if I was going to say, well, what are some of the particular things that the teacher does in relationship to the student while you're here? What's the teacher's role in this process of joint inquiry? One thing is just to make a connection with you and help you feel connected and respected in some sort of way. So you feel like, okay, there's a kind of lifeline here, there's somebody I can talk to, there's, um, yeah, somebody paying attention that can be a resource to me. So then another thing that we do is to inquire about your retreat experiences generally and specifically. So to help you investigate your investigation. Right? You're doing the investigation through this moment-by-moment sustained presence. That's your investigation. But we investigate 
your investigation with you. So you'll notice, for instance, uh, uh, when you come in, the teacher might say, well, okay, what, are you, what have you noticed? And they're trying to get you to say something specific about what you're experiencing in the course of, of the practice. And then when you start to say your experience, the teacher will listen, may ask you other questions about it, you know, to help help you help elicit uh, additional uh, details or specifics. Or they may kind of start this process of reframing what you're telling them. Have you noticed this? The teacher sometimes <laughs> reframes and reviews and so so you go in to see the teacher and you say, the teacher says, hi, how's it going? And you say, it's a mess, you know. Yesterday I was, I was doing so good and today it's all negative. And, uh, you know, I realize that I'm not cut out for this and, you know, every time I sit down I, you know, my mind is all over the place and, you know, I can't, can't focus and I think I'm, I want to go home. And so the teacher says, so you've noticed a change of experience from yesterday. You're having the arising of particular thoughts. How would you characterize those thoughts? Are those thoughts pleasant or unpleasant? <laughs> or neither pleasant nor unpleasant? And would you say they're, they have an emotion bound up in them? And what emotion is that? Would you say that's frustration or is that anger? Or is that more like despair? Or is that... And did you notice any particular body resonance that was present with that emotion? Where did you feel it in the body? And what were those sensations like? Were the, the sensations pleasant? Were they unpleasant in and of themselves? Or were they just kind of happening but no big charge in relationship to them? And what was the attitude of mind that you noticed when you felt frustrated. Did you accept the fact you were frustrated or, you know, were you like totally absorbed in the in fighting with frustration? And how long did it take for that state to pass away? And what arose after that? Okay, this is a different kind of conversation you're having, right? And this is really a big part of the teacher's role because there's a direct coaching in how and how the teacher is, is approaching your description of your experience. So the teacher is giving you some big clues about what it would be like to actually use the mindfulness that's available to you to do investigation of the state. So this part of 
teaching people how to report or talk about their experiences and how to hold their experiences within the practice framework is a really big part of the role. So that's what all of those very specific questions are about. So it's an interesting thing and it can feel a little odd until you start to realize that, you know, this is what happens on retreat. It's not like the teacher is not interested in your life or your, your emotions or your narrative or anything like that. It's just an understanding that the best service that we can offer to you while you're here learning how to work mindfully with what arises is to model it in, in relationship to you and kind of display it in the interaction, the back and forth interaction that we have with you. So it's, it's a different thing from like talking to a friend where you might go in and you know express all of the same things I just talked about and the friend would might go, oh poor baby, come oh, come on. It's okay, let me give you a big hug. Well, in an interesting kind of way, the teacher is giving you a big hug. It's just not a sloppy hug. It's, they're giving you a meta-mindfulness hug and saying, it's okay, you could look at it this way. You could hold it this way. You could experience it this way. This is, this is a, a good way to learn how to be with experience. This is onward leading. This is less absorbed in the suffering and the deluded swirl around the suffering. You could notice this, you could notice this, you could notice this as it's happening. Learn to use your uh, capacity to direct and sustain awareness in this kind of way in real time. This is what is going to be onward leading for you. So that's a big piece of it. And no, we don't always do that with our partners when they come home and (laughs) say, I had a rotten day at work. I just want to quit. And where did you notice that in your body? (laughs) All right. So it's role specific to this environment. Okay, so another thing that, that we can do is help you clarify and modify your and personalize your practice instructions, your meditation instructions. We, the teacher can help troubleshoot places in practice where you're having difficulty and give you tips on how you can work with particular things. You know, direct you towards skillful effort and encourage you along the way. And then keep you from deluded self-evaluation. So. I talked about that at length previously. Oh, it's so going so bad, it's so bad, it's so horrible. So, you know, we have this idea in practice that once we start getting traction, having certain kinds of experiences, we have this human expectation that it's kind of like this, you know, it's a ramp, we kind of just ramp up. You know, you kind of like ramp up. But the actual path of practice especially when practice actually starts to get some traction, is not like that at all. You can have a run of certain kinds of experiences where, for instance, the mind is concentrated or 
it feels really clear. There's a, a lot of metta and you know a lot of uh, pleasant uh, feeling tone and stuff. But because that's conditioned, that cycle of practice, just like everything else at a certain kind of point, is actually going to pass away itself. It's going to collapse. And then you'll get a run of a, things feeling quite different. So, you know, if, the, if the, the egoic sense, if the self-sense is in there, like, oh, God, it was going so good, and then I, I messed it up, and now look at how it's, my practice is a disaster. It's like, oh, I thought I understood, but now I see I don't understand, and I really shouldn't have tried this. You know, I should have stayed home and, you know, gone to the spa, and it would have been better for me and more relaxing. It's like, no. You go in to see the teacher, you describe the teach the experience and the teacher says oh so the vedana is unpleasant now you go yeah but you don't understand you know what's going so good now oh the vedana is unpleasant now you don't like that (laughs) there's resistance to that there's aversion to the change in vedana right oh and then the then you see the arising of the grasping of the wanting to get it back to make it feel crunchy and satisfying again. Oh, so you're seeing clinging. You're seeing craving and, and clinging for pleasant experience that isn't available to you now, and so you're seeing suffering, right? Have you noticed your suffering? So, which is a whole different thing from, oh, and then I was doing so good, and then I messed it up, and now look at how it is. No, it's just different, okay? Different now. How is it now? How is it now? Now. And how is it now? So, part of what goes on in these conversations are conversations about Dharma, in particular, Dharma point. Like pointing out where there's attachment, pointing out where there's expectation, pointing out where there's clinging, pointing out where you're seeing impermanence pointing out where you're seeing the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned things, pointing out where you can see the truth of not-self just by noticing the fact that you're not in control of what's happening moment by moment. So, you know, encouraging you, kind of talking you off the, off the ledge is part of it too. It's okay. It's okay. Notice when it passes away. Notice when this state passes away. Notice when this, these unpleasant or difficult physical sensations pass away. So let's talk about the role of the student in this joint investigation. So just as a preamble to this part of it, in order for things to work between the teacher and the student, to their maximum uh, benefit, you need to be a full participant in the process. So you provide the information that's needed for the dialogue to begin by saying what you notice about your practice. So the questions from the teacher can help elicit or bring forward more understanding of what you're actually experiencing it. But you're the basic source of it. You're the source of the information that's going to be used to help guide your practice. So in order for you to be forthcoming, there needs to be at least some provisional trust 
present in the space in order to really put it out there, especially since it's not an unusual thing to, to come in and report what you think is, you know, a train wreck. And that can feel hard to do with somebody you don't know very well. You know, there can be feelings of nervousness or sensitivity or vulnerability around this kind of thing, especially if you don't uh, know the teacher very well or you don't have a, you know, a, a feeling of a, a connection with them yet. And sometimes in retreat, of course, you're uh, in the silent mode, so especially if, if you've been on retreat for a while, it can actually be hard to find the words. Um, and there's the, you know, the fear of being judged, of not being good enough. You know, this is all normal too. Or the flip side of that is, you know, wanting to be acknowledged or feel special and uh, be seen. And that's all normal. And, you know, maybe you're not sure what to say or where to start. Or maybe you don't want the teacher to kind of get in there and tell you what to be doing. Right? You want to do your own thing. But what really works is forthrightness and authenticity, which means you know telling the truth about what you're experiencing and how you're you're practicing. So if you're nervous or you don't know what to say or how to get started, you could just say that to the teacher and they'll help help you along. They'll help you to move past that point. So it can be really useful to the extent you can to uh, talk about your experience within the framework of the practice instructions. Now, some of you who have practiced in Asia, for instance, if you've, say, practiced with uh, Mahasi-style noting practice, you know in many of those traditional settings are very, there's a very clear structure of what happens when you go in to see a teacher, right? You do your bows and then, you know, you say, I was noticing the rising and falling of the breath at the abdomen. I know, noticed pushing and warmth and tightening and da-da-da-da-da. And then I noticed da-da-da on the fall and the, you know, the pause in between was, was clear. And, you know, and then, you know, then they ring the little bell. <laughs> after they maybe say a few words or maybe they don't and out you go, right? So we're not so structured here, right? We so the teacher doesn't say, I want you to tell me, you know, da 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 every time you come in I want to hear about this one thing over and over again and you just keep giving me more detail. So it's not strict or tight like this, partially because there's a number of different sets of instructions going on here. Because it's all kind of customized to you individually. But still, an organized description is most helpful. So it would be good to cover something from your sitting, from your walking, from your daily activities, including the yogi job. And to be able to describe what set of instructions you're using. So that last one has to do with things like, where are you noticing, the, are you using the breath as a concentration object? If you are, where are you noticing the breath? Are you using it as an exclusive object right now or are you uh, 
practicing with it when it's predominant? Or are you just getting started with it and then going to open awareness, right? All of these kinds of things you could tell the teacher. And of course that assumes that, you know, you've got some sense of coherence yourself about what instructions you're using. So if, if you do nothing else while you're here, that would be a really good thing to work with uh, and develop a set of coherent practice instructions. So, you know, you don't need to conceal anything or, you know, save the most important thing for last. That, that happens commonly. You know, like I could be sitting there and talking with somebody for 15 minutes and then when it's about time for their time to be up, you know, they'll stand up and as they're walking towards the door, they'll say, and I haven't slept for four days, you know, <laughs> I'm hallucinating. <laughs> well, you know, you're like, you know, bring the big stuff up first. <laughs> you know, if you've got big stuff, then you're going to want to bring up the big stuff first. Um, and that, uh, an important piece of this too is, you know, you don't need to protect the teacher. So, you know, sometimes there's this idea because, you know, we may think our own particular mind is especially horrifying that, you know, that there's certain things that, you know, just are beyond the pale and shouldn't be shared about, you know, our, I don't know, obsessive thinking or, our, you know, lust attacks or our, you know, craving to, you know, do something or, okay, but, you know, really we can handle it, okay, because we've been on retreat too, and there's probably not too much that you're going to experience that we haven't experienced some version of, and perhaps a more extreme version than the version you've got, so, you know, the, we won't be shocked or horrified, so you really can bring anything into the room. And it's important to say that because sometimes we may have the feeling, uh, you know, especially if we have a, a sense of being different or being separate uh, from the, you know, the main herd that there's parts of us that we need to leave outside. You know, so if you're a gay person, you can say that in the to the teacher, right? If that's present for you, okay, I came to this environment and I'm feeling a little uneasy and then I realized it was because I wasn't sure it was, you know, if that's like there, that's present, you can put that out there, right? Oh, I came into this environment and I was wondering if I was going to be the only person of color and I, you know, feel this little sense of fear that I maybe don't, you know what I mean? So if it's there and it's real for you, you can speak what it, what it is. Right? All in the sense of getting ease and comfort and authenticity uh, with the teacher. Right? Or if it's like one of those, okay, I've been drinking really hard for the last six months and I haven't practiced in the last year. And, you know, I stopped drinking last week, but I'm really, I really want it. Okay, this is all like stuff you can bring forward. You can tell your, tell your teacher in the interest of them giving you support that would be meaningful and useful. So then the last point to really touch on is the question of 
how do we decide what to tell you or how to advise you in your practice? So here's the secret formula. You want to know what it is? We, we run this through every time we see you and we punch in the variables and then you know out it comes, the answer to your practice. So it's what you tell us verbally and non-verbally, right? what comes out of your mouth and then the affect thing, plus the teacher's dharma knowledge and meditation experience mixed with intuition and what arises in the present as we're actually in the room, they're talking and communicating. That equals the advice and guidance you're going to be offered. And you can really see that this is very much a joint product, right? So there's the what you're displaying, what you're revealing, what you're sharing. There's how it is perceived or received or impacts uh, on our own body-mind system. And then the spontaneous kind of arising, coming forward from our own hearts and minds in response to what's there. So now you know the secret. That's what's going on in the teacher meeting. So may you all learn to use this opportunity for your benefit and well-being and to gain what there is to be gained from it and in the interest of your own empowerment. So let's do the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.